Turpin. Forward. William Still's The Underground Railroad Records is a massive testimony of resistance. The road, as Still would often refer to it, was paved and rugged, choreographed and improvised. Enslaved people shipped themselves in boxes, stowed away in steamships, and stole away the value placed on their labor and bodies as they dressed as men or passed as free to travel north. Still stood as a historian of fugitivity. An entrepreneur in Philadelphia and beginning in 1847, a clerk and corresponding secretary of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, he became active in the abolitionist movement. When anti-slavery activists reorganized the Vigilant Committee into the Vigilance Committee after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, still served as its chairman and coordinated a vast network of anti-slavery advocates and provided a welcome to many tired souls looking for safe passage anywhere in North America. Still welcomed approximately 649 fugitives and recorded their stories, experiences, and expectations. These records of the road provide a window onto the paradox of slavery and freedom and the space between them. Still first published the Underground Railroad Records in 1872. This and subsequent editions included anecdotes, first-hand accounts, and letters from those escaping slavery and those assisting. Still's archival collection amounted to over 800 pages. This present edition has been heavily edited to provide listeners access to this significant text. While I have omitted approximately two-thirds of the material, I have privileged the experiences of women and families in this edition. Historians have written extensively about enslaved men who fled slavery. The assumption was that enslaved women showed up in the advertisements for fugitive slaves less often than men because women were less likely to leave children behind. While this is a misreading of the advertisements, the Underground Railroad Records demonstrates that black women ran away often, with and without children, husbands, and other family members. They were creative and steadfast in their fight and flight. As much as this text is about slavery and freedom, it is centrally about family. These accounts, and particularly the letters from fugitives to Still, reveal their longing for those left behind. They wanted Still's help in getting wives, husbands, or children out of slavery, or help reuniting them with loved ones who left before them and may have been in hiding. They attempted to reconstitute families as a function of how they understood freedom. Indeed, these are love letters, sorrow songs of ingenuity and hope, and records of visibility from people who needed to remain invisible and out of sight. I have left the letters from enslaved men and women intact, misspellings and all. As Still himself notes, the originals, however ungrammatically written or erroneously spelt, in their native simplicity, possess such beauty and force as corrections and additions could not possibly enhance. While it may take the listener a little time to decipher some words in the text, 
This minor inconvenience is the least we can endure, considering the circumstances and larger historical context in which these letters were written. Given the time and space constraints, I have omitted a number of accounts and sections of the original text. To be clear, every fugitive, every account, every experience is singularly weighted with the heavy heart and soul of one's journey toward a more free place. In addition to privileging women's experiences, I also sought to include different kinds of journeys from a variety of locations. Although Still's text is also about the work of the Vigilance Committee, I have elected to omit a major section, Portraits and Sketches, that provides short biographies of some of the most famous and active black and white abolitionists of the 19th century. Many of these names, however, show up in the various accounts of fugitives' journeys. I accept sole responsibility for any errors or shortcomings in this curated edition. The stories in this book are gripping, heart-wrenching, and telling of the fortitude of those denied liberty. These are stories of the past, but we should not look past their illuminations on our present. Angela Davis's and Asada Shakur's fugitivity could be appended to this text. The stories of unarmed black men and women could, too, be appended to this text, as many have sought spaces something akin to freedom. Their road was more modern, but no more paved. Stills, the Underground Railroad Records paradoxically hides and unveils the practice of freedom. Quincy T. Mills Introduction when I was a child, one of my favorite field trips was from my Baltimore public school to the National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian in Washington. What I remember and what I loved best was the life-size dioramas of the past, still dramatizations of Neanderthals or watering holes somewhere on the savannah. Even then I was fascinated by history, a world that shaped my own but that I could never visit. The dioramas, three-dimensional reconstructions of the past, were as close as I could ever get. The importance of that key word, reconstructions, I would not learn until much later. The problems inherent to reconstructing the past, the importing of modern prejudice and expectations, were all there in those dioramas depicting, for instance, the first meetings between the pilgrims and the Native Americans. But the inherent problem of Reconstruction isn't simply the importing of prejudice. The problem is in its promise that the past is a fixed entity and can be objectively reconstructed. But the truth is that the past can never be fully captured because the past no longer exists. All we have of it are the dramatizations we conjure, the dioramas we construct, the stories we tell. For most of American history, this country's historians and mythmakers have favored a particular story of the epic of enslavement and all that came of it. The story comes in two forms. At its most sympathetic, it features heroic whites joined by pliant and accommodating blacks triumphing over the worst of their bigoted brethren. The recurring vocabulary of this story features a vague love and shapeless hope 
which somehow triumphed over a wild and virulent race hatred. In the worst version of the story, these haters are transformed into Arthurian knights, tragically defending an ancient and noble way of life, of which enslavement is but a small part. What each of these stories has in common is the inability to consider the enslaved as the hero of their own epic. But while these might be the best-known stories, they are not the only ones. From the time of their enslavement to this very day, black people have told different stories, ones that have not enjoyed the glamour and lights of Hollywood. The importance of these stories is not that they present a different or revisionist story of the past, nor in their lack of embellishment or blind spots. What makes them so vital is that they do not take as their premise an outright lie. There is no better illustration of this alternative history than William Still's The Underground Railroad Records. Still was conductor for the Underground Railroad and, of equal importance, he was a lay historian, recording the small daily acts of bravery he witnessed in his work. Still was not burdened with the need to use these stories to exculpate himself from the sins of slavery. Nor did he need to establish himself at the center of the story. This allowed him to focus on the people who had the most at stake, the runaways who risked their bodies to escape enslavement. Still simply allows the acts of those he shepherded through to speak for themselves. And those acts of the once enslaved collected in the Underground Railroad records offer not just a set of stories that needs no adornment, but stories that are ultimately more thrilling than the fabrications that erase them. In a righteous world, We were listening to a preview of the audio book, The Underground Railroad Records, in the Play Store, or your App Store. That's a good one. I have to come back and find find another good one. Let's see the Hemings, the Hemings of Monticello, an American family. Annette Gordon Reed, narrated by Karen White. Hemingses of Monticello, an American family, by Annette Gordon-Reed, narrated by Karen White, copyright 2008 by Annette Gordon-Reed, 
This unabridged audiobook is published by arrangement with W.W. W. Norton and Company, Incorporated, and was produced in the year 2008 by Tantor Media, Incorporated, which holds the copyright thereto. Preface A number of years back, while at the Massachusetts Historical Society for a speaking engagement, I had the chance to read through the original version of Thomas Jefferson's farm book, an extremely valuable part of the Society's collection, a pivotal document within the vast array of the written material that Jefferson produced over the course of his very long lifetime. In it he recorded the names, births, family, configurations, rations, and work assignments of all the people enslaved on his plantations. Waiting for books in research libraries was nothing new to me, but this time the anticipation was almost exponentially heightened because I was finally going to get to see and touch an item that I had been reading in facsimile form since high school. The librarian brought the farm book out to me, and I was slightly startled by its size. It was much smaller than I had imagined it would be and much more well-preserved, and I knew the society was taking great pains to keep it that way. The librarian left me alone. When I opened the pages to see that very familiar hand and the neatly written entries, many of which I knew by heart, I was completely overwhelmed. For a time, I simply could not continue. There had been other moments before then when I was brought up short while reading through the farm book and thinking of the people described in it and of the man who wrote it. Just who do you think you are? He determined who got fish and how many, who got cloth and how much, and the number of blankets that were given out, the course of the lives of grown men, women, and their children set by this one man. I knew everything that was in the book and understood what it meant long before I sat down to look at it again that day. Still, it was wrenching to hold the original and to know that Jefferson's actual hand had dipped into the inkwell and touched these pages to create what was to me a record of human oppression. It took my breath away. Of course, Jefferson did not see the farm book as I did. Had he thought it merely a record of oppression, greatly as he craved posterity's favorable judgment, he would never have kept it. Certainly members of his legal white family would not have preserved it. They, too, were anxious to safeguard and cultivate his legacy because they loved him deeply and because their own sense of self was so firmly tied to that legacy. It is, in fact, highly unlikely that it ever occurred to Jefferson that his record of the lives of his slaves would become the subject of scholarly interest, even a passion among some that his slaves' lives would be chronicled and followed in minute detail, the interest in them often unmoored from any interest in him. No, this was a workaday document to tell him what he had to buy from year to year, to keep some sense of what would be needed to continue operations. In Jefferson's monumentally patriarchal and self-absorbed view, one shared by his fellow slave-owning planters, this was... Oh, the responsibilities I have! Here is what I have done and have yet to do for all my family. The word family brings us to the subject of this book, The Hemingses of Monticello, 
No one can know what they, who were his family, both biologically and in the figurative sense in which Jefferson meant it, thought about the farm book. They are listed there, too, his wife's sisters and brothers, their children, their mother, and his own children. Members of the family almost certainly knew it existed, and if they knew, their other relatives knew as well. Martin, Robert, James, and Sally Hemings, their nephew, Burwell Colbert, among others, were close enough to Jefferson to see his books, to come upon him working, to know the important and not-so-important things, emotional and physical, that were in his life. However familiar they were with its contents, one thing that all of the enslaved people at Monticello would have known about the farm book, not just the Hemingses, is that it described some parts of their lives, but definitely not all, reproducing only a tiny fraction of a snapshot of life at Monticello that provides a very useful baseline for inquiry. What is in the book must be added to information from other sources, including the statements and actions of the Hemings family, Jefferson's family letters, even some writings from Hemingses that reveal the family's complicated relationship to the master of Monticello, and the wealth of information about the institution of slavery as it was lived during the Hemingses' time. That the names of the children of Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson appear in a book detailing the lives of slaves conveniently and poignantly encapsulates the tortured history of slavery and race in America. But Monticello was a world unto itself for four generations of Hemingses, whose lives cannot be reduced to the saga of one nuclear family within its bloodline, important as that subset was. We must, and will, pay attention to them, but they were only part of a much larger family story, opening the world of the other members of this family, to see how those particular African Americans made their way through slavery in America is the purpose of this book. Theirs was a world that is mercifully gone, but must never be forgotten. Introduction In September of 1998, the Omohundro Institute of Early American Culture and History and the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, hosted a conference designed to give scholars of slavery a preview of a newly compiled database of transatlantic slave voyages. For the first time in history, records of every known voyage of slave-trading vessels operating between Africa and the Americas would be available in a CD-ROM format. The implications for scholarly research were staggering. Information about an activity central to the development of the modern Western world would be available at the touch of a finger. Though the conference unveiling this new research tool was designed primarily for scholars, with a heavy tilt toward those interested in economic history, scores of laypeople, mainly blacks, came too, hoping to find some word, some trace of their ancestors. Not all were looking for ancestors in the general sense in which many blacks refer to those enslaved in America from the 17th century through most of the 19th. It was clear that many hoped the database might help them find their specific progenitors, what their names were and where they came from. Others not interested in their own genealogy 
apparently had come hoping to hear more of the lives of individuals who endured the Middle Passage. Their hopes were largely dashed. There were no passenger manifests for slave voyages. Slavers were not interested in the names of the Africans bound for bondage in the New World. Notations about the voyages served strictly business purposes and included the names of the vessel, the captain, and perhaps a first mate, the number of the human cargo, where they came from, and where they were going, along with any on-board events that might inform future voyages. Was there a revolt, a problem with rations? It was left to the enslaved Africans to keep the memory of their identities and origins alive, no small task, particularly in the land that would become the United States as generations passed and Africans became Americans. While the conference was just about what I had expected, it frustrated many of those who had come to Williamsburg, hoping to make a personal connection to the African captives. Each day when we broke for lunch or refreshments, I could hear murmurs of concern about the way things were proceeding. By the end of the conference, one participant, angered by what he perceived as the coldness of historians talking about slavery in terms of the numbers of people sent here and the numbers of people sent there, erupted. The conference, he charged, was devoid of feeling and emotion. Where was the scope of the human loss? Where was the sense of the bottomless tragedy of it all? Of course, the evidence of human loss and tragedy was right there. The numbers told a story, but in the detached and steely way that numbers tend to do. Slavery had many aspects, and getting a handle on the logistics and economics of the institution, how many people were moved, how many ships were used, how many miles over the ocean were covered, how much money was made, is as vital as telling personal stories— as vital, but perhaps not as immediately compelling. It is a safe bet that most people respond more forcefully and intensely to other people than to numbers, so the lament about the conference's alleged focus on numbers compiled to suit the aims of businessmen, if not a little unfair, was understandable. Statistical data about a cargo of human beings, deplorable and heart-rending as that is, is depersonalized. One yearns to know the individuals behind the statistics. What were their names? There is great power in a name. What were their lives like before the horror that engulfed them? How did they cope in the new world? What were their stories? While it is true that the lives of the vast majority of people who lived during the time of American slavery are lost to history, the anonymity of American slaves is even more pronounced. The business of shipping slaves required no gathering and recording of information about the captives as individuals, and the business of keeping slaves was similarly minimalist. And few slaves had the chance to supplement the record by setting down their stories in either diaries, letters to family, or official records, marriage bans, birth announcements, wills proved, the kinds of documents that allow many white Americans to reconstruct at least some part of their family stories, or the story as they would like to tell it. The medium of biography, so effective in conveying information about times gone by, 
and perhaps the most accessible and popular form of historical writing, is problematic in the context of slavery. Remaining for those who seek to know American slaves and the institution of slavery are the memories of those enslaved, the records of white owners who, in taking care of business, kept track of their human property, and information about the larger historical context in which all these individuals operated. Getting at this last source, the historical context, is by necessity a huge interdisciplinary enterprise, a matter of law, anthropology, psychology, archaeology, and economics, all the universe of influences that shaped lives under slavery. In gathering information, we must cast the net as widely as possible if we want to see slavery through the eyes of the enslaved. The Hemings family of Monticello escaped the enforced anonymity of slavery for a number of reasons. First, because multiple generations of this large clan were owned by one of history's most well-known figures, Thomas Jefferson, an inveterate record-keeper and writer of letters. Jefferson's papers have been grist for the scholarly mill for many years, and members of the Hemings family have long figured in Jefferson scholarship, but only as side characters in the saga of Jefferson and his white family. Only recently have the Hemingses and other members of Monticello's enslaved community become the focus of scholarly attention. It is a sad paradox, in a story overrun with paradox and irony, that there being the property of a famous man ensured that, as the Jefferson scholar James A. Bear has pointed out, more would be known about this family of slaves than is known about the vast majority of free-born white Virginians of the time. And then there is the place itself. Monticello, one of the best-known residences in the United States during Jefferson's time and today, is rich with the history of the Hemings family. Hemingses helped build and maintain the house, crafted furniture for it, and laid its floors. They worked as servants within the household, tended the gardens, and performed other essential tasks throughout the plantation. They lived there as husbands and wives, raising their children in slavery as best they could. Some died and were buried there. It is quite simply impossible to tell an adequate history of the mountain without including Hemingses. Of course, the main reason that people all over the world have known about this particular enslaved family during and after the era of slavery is Jefferson's relationship with Sarah Hemings, known most famously by her nickname Sally. Hemings and Jefferson were talked about in their immediate community during the 1790s, and their story, or a version of it, burst upon the national scene in the early 1800s, when Jefferson's enemies sought to use their relationship as a weapon to destroy his presidency and to prevent his election to a second term. The tactic did not work. Jefferson won in a landslide, bringing to office with him a large Republican majority in Congress. The people, whose wisdom Jefferson trusted, sometimes almost too implicitly, either did not believe the Hemings story or thought it trivial when compared with what they felt Jefferson and his administration had to offer them. These events were not just about the life and fortunes of Thomas Jefferson. 
other people were involved. Sally Hemings, her children, her mother, and other members of her family were dragged into the national spotlight in a way unprecedented for individual American slaves. During the early part of the 19th century, Sally Hemings appeared in newspapers as Dusky Sally, Yellow Sally, and even Mrs. Sarah Jefferson. She was depicted in cartoons and lampooned in bawdy ballads all alongside Thomas Jefferson. The story crossed the Atlantic, with foreign commentators weighing in with their own perspectives. Sally Hemings is often treated as a figure of no historical significance, a mere object of malicious personal gossip. That shouldn't surprise. Aside from forays into history from the bottom up, a perspective that has been given increased emphasis over the past 40 years, Historical writing tends to favor the lives of individuals who spoke, acted, and had a direct hand in shaping whatever particular moment they lived in. Hemings does not fit the bill on any of these accounts. She neither spoke publicly about her life nor engaged in any public acts that have been recorded. Others, journalists, Jefferson's enemies, determined how she entered the spotlight and they put her there with no real interest in her as a person. Even though she was not in control of her life, Hemings must be seen as a figure of historical importance for a multiplicity of reasons, not the least of which is that her name and her life entered the public record during the run-up to a presidential election. Much has been written about Jefferson's daughters and grandchildren, and they are treated as historically important simply because of their legal relationship to him, even though none of them ever figured in the politics and public life of his day. On the other hand, politically ambitious men with power used Hemings and her children as weapons against Jefferson while he was alive and in the decades immediately following his death. Her connection to him inspired the first novel published by an African-American. It had resonance within black communities as ministers and black journalists in the early American Republic preached on and referred to Hemings's family situation, one that would have seemed quite familiar to their predominantly mixed-race audiences, most of whom were free precisely because their fathers or immediate forefathers had been white men. Finally, Hemings's story affected members of Jefferson's white family, notably his grandchildren, who, for the benefit of the historians who they knew would one day come calling, fashioned an image of life at Monticello designed in part to obscure her relevance. Even without direct agency in these matters, Sally Hemings has had an impact on the shaping of history. More important for our purposes, we must also see the public spectacle surrounding Hemings and Jefferson as a defining episode in the lives of all the Hemingses. No contemporaneous evidence of what members of the family were thinking as the talk of the pair made its way through the country's newspapers and communities has come to light. They surely knew that people were talking because others at Monticello members of Jefferson's white family, his friends, and at least one white Jefferson employee, are on record stating that the relationship was much talked about in Jefferson's neighborhood. 
in every community, throughout history, slaves and servants have been privy to the innermost secrets, anxieties, strengths, weaknesses, successes, and failures of the people they served. The Hemingses were no different. There is much evidence that the Hemings-Jefferson connection meant a great deal to some members of her family. Madison Hemings, who, at age 68, spoke of his life as the second son of Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, told part of his family's story to an interviewer in 1873, setting down valuable information about the family's origins, life at Monticello, and the lives of one branch of the family after emancipation. The historians Lucia Stanton and Diane Swan Wright have noted the other ways in which the Hemings-Jefferson liaison helped keep the Hemings's story at Monticello alive for successive generations of the family. Apparently, the relationship and its notoriety were critical reference points, not only for the descendants of Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, but for collateral branches of the family as well, serving as a guidepost that helped them remember who they were and where their family had been. Even the descendants of slaves at Monticello who were not members of the Hemings family carried the story of Hemings and Jefferson as an important truth about life on the mountain. When other things were forgotten, that understanding remained. Sally Hemings and her children have overshadowed the lives of other members of her family. How could they not, given their relationship to Thomas Jefferson, who himself looms like a colossus over the lives of all those who will be discussed in these pages. In recognition of the importance of the topic, chapters 14 through 17 veer slightly from the narrative to provide an in-depth analysis of the pair's beginnings in Paris. There is, however, far more to the Hemingses than Sally and Tom, and although that pair must be a critical part of our consideration, this book is not designed to tell just their story. There are many others who complete the picture of the family's time in slavery and whose lives deserve to be woven into the tapestry of American history. No look at Monticello and slavery would be complete without a portrait of Sally Hemings's brother, James Hemings, who lived in France with Jefferson for five years along with his sister Sally. These two members of the Hemings family traveled the farthest distance away from slavery at Monticello, experiencing life in what was, at the time, perhaps the most cultivated city on earth and even witnessing the start of the French Revolution. Their time in France forever altered the course of their lives. For Sally Hemings, it marked the beginning of her time with Jefferson. For James Hemings, it marked the beginning of the end. In his life, we see the tragedy of talent thwarted by the limitations of slavery and white supremacy. Then there is the story of John Hemings, the extremely talented carpenter and joiner whose work is still on display at Monticello. In John Hemings's life, we see the blend of slavery as a work system and as a system of personal relationships. Hemings, who helped Jefferson realize his vision for the look of Monticello, was also a surrogate father to Jefferson's sons, Beverly, Madison, and Eston. It was not just the males in the family who were prime movers, as much as enslaved people could be. 
Mary Hemings, the eldest of the first generation of Hemings siblings, exerted a remarkable influence upon the family. She was the first to maneuver her way out of slavery on the mountain. She was able to be a source of refuge, stability, and monetary support for her relatives who remained in bondage at Monticello up to and beyond the time of the family's dispersal in 1827 when Jefferson's human property was sold after his death to pay his enormous debts. Every story has a beginning, and we will start there. One could argue strenuously that the central and most compelling figure in the family's history was not Sally Hemings, but her mother, Elizabeth, whose experiences in life helped project her influence down the family line. Elizabeth Hemings, known as Betty, was the matriarch of a family that over four generations numbered in the dozens. She was well suited to that role for many reasons, not the least of which is that she lived a very long time, 72 years, well beyond the average lifespan of Virginians of her day, black or white. Also, she had many children, by one count, 14 of them, although only 12 have been positively identified as hers. Half of her children had a black father, half had a white father. Her grandchildren, some of whom were born while she was still bearing children, had black fathers and white fathers. The mixing continued into succeeding generations until some of her descendants decided to move totally away from their African origins, while others resolutely clung to it. Behind all of this stands Elizabeth Hemings, the person of origin for the family and their story. The unnamed African woman who was her mother, John Wales, who fathered six of her children, including Sally Hemings, Martha Wales Jefferson, Wales's eldest daughter, Jefferson's wife, and Sally's half-sister, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, all of them lived for a time under her knowing gaze. If one person could be brought forward to help tell this story of slavery, intertwined families, pain, loss, silence, denial, and endurance, hers would be the most valuable voice. Like all enslaved parents, Elizabeth Hemings lived with the possibility that her family would be broken up by sale or gift. In fact, two of her adult children were sold, one to be united with her enslaved husband, who lived on a nearby plantation, the other to cohabit with a white merchant in Charlottesville. Jefferson freed two of her sons during her lifetime, and they left Monticello to live on their own. Another daughter was given as a wedding present to one of Jefferson's sisters. For the most part, however, the Hemings family remained intact, or within close proximity to one another, for their entire lives. As a result, each member had, in the person of Elizabeth Hemings, a mother, grandmother, to be the repository of family lore and center of family attention. The women of the family were house servants who worked alongside one another for years. Their brothers, sons, and nephews were butlers or valets to Jefferson. The Hemings men, who were not in the house, were artisans who worked just outside of it on Mulberry Row, which abuts and runs parallel to the main house at Monticello. One of Hemings's many grandchildren set the scene, recalling a childhood spent running errands in and out of the big house, surrounded entirely by, 
and this to him was extraordinary and important, members of his family. In this compact area, the Hemingses would have seen and interacted with one another every single day. In sum, this family was at least as much together as many other families who lived on farms during the 18th and 19th centuries. Moreover, in the Hemingses' confined world on the mountain, the entire enslaved community in which they lived was basically stable over the years. With few exceptions, births, deaths, temporary moves from one household to another, the roles of Jefferson's Monticello slaves do not change much over the decades. That the Hemingses were enslaved thus did not automatically render them incapable of knowing who they were, of knowing their mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers. Slavery did not destroy their ability to observe, remember, and reason. It did not prevent them from forming enduring and meaningful attachments. It did not make them untrustworthy, certainly not when compared with the people who held them in bondage. In short, nothing about their enslaved status makes them undeserving of our considered and unprejudiced attention. We do not have, in the Hemingses, an enslaved family with loose ties, little knowledge of family history, and no family cohesion. That Virginia law did not protect their family does not end the inquiry, for legal regimes are not omnipotent. Powerful as they may be, they never have, and never will, because they cannot, control all human feelings and arrangements. While it is certainly important to be aware of what could have happened to this enslaved family, because its members were not ultimately in control of their destiny, that knowledge should not overshadow what can be gleaned by considering what actually happened to them. Under the circumstances of their lives, the Hemingses were able to achieve and maintain a coherent family identity that existed within slavery and survived it. Central to the Hemingses' identity was their being of mixed race. Basing American slavery on race created a world where, put simply, it was better to be white than black. Being in between was meaningful as well, and the Hemingses' interracial origins helped determine the course of the family's history. The conventional wisdom that white slave owners sometimes valued more highly those slaves who most resembled white people was very much a part of life at Monticello, and the Hemingses benefited from it. Although, as we will see, at least one other enslaved family, the Grangers, who appear to have been of completely African origin, rivaled, if not exceeded, the Hemingses in the amount of trust Jefferson reposed in them. Thomas Jefferson Randolph, Jefferson's eldest grandson, extolled the virtues of the Hemingses specifically. He said that while slaves on the plantation had their own theories for why the Hemingses were favored, the true reasons were their superior intelligence, capacity, and fidelity to trust. There is no cause to doubt that the Hemingses were indeed intelligent, but we should also consider what role their appearance and the knowledge of their genetic makeup may have played in his assessment of them. Randolph was likely influenced by the common view among whites that intermixture with white people eugenically improved black people, 
making the children from these unions smarter and more attractive than those of full African heritage. Under the circumstances, Randolph and his grandfather would have been inclined to see, credit, and encourage the talent they saw in men and women who looked more like themselves. That is one way prejudice works. Like architecture, which can convey meaning as eloquently through the spaces left empty as the areas built over, Randolph's statement about the Hemingses is illuminating for what it says. He gives a view of the family's overall talent and intriguing for what it does not say. Just what were those other unnamed reasons the slaves gave for the Hemings family's ascendancy? Was it just that they were fair-skinned, or was there something else? Although Randolph chose not to elaborate on this point, it is not too hard to figure out what he had in mind. The Hemingses were not only part white, their white parts came from the master's family. Naturally, the other slaves at Monticello might have assumed that this counted for something, influencing the way they and others saw the Hemingses and the way the family saw itself. It would be hard to look at a household filled with members of the same family and not come to the conclusion that their shared blood was why they were all there. How did others enslaved at Monticello see the Hemingses? Thomas Jefferson Randolph provided one perspective. Among the other slaves, he said, the Hemingses' role at Monticello was a source of bitter jealousy. The enslaved people down the mountain were watching and evidently weighing the Hemingses. Jeff Randolph may well have been right that the source of friction between Hemingses and non-Hemingses was jealousy. But couldn't the other slaves have had concerns that Randolph would not likely have perceived? What about the fact that some Hemingses clearly identified with Jefferson and his family, sometimes displaying extreme loyalty to them? Did the other slaves find that grating? The Jefferson Randolphs, after all, were keeping all members of the enslaved community, Hemingses and non-Hemingses alike, in bondage. Their superior intelligence, capacity, and fidelity to trusts were not saving the overwhelming majority of them from that fate. At least some of those enslaved at Monticello might view the Hemings's way of accommodating to their circumstances as problematic. Or perhaps the friction was merely the result of the much-discussed tension between slaves who worked in the fields and those who worked in the master's house. Scholars have rightly cautioned against calling house slaves privileged, mainly because the term does not take into account the views of the enslaved. It just assumes that they would have thought spending their days around white people a desirable thing, that being chosen to be in proximity to white masters was a sign of good fortune. White slave owners may have thought so, but that was only their view. It also assumes that the relative easiness of housework when compared with fieldwork dramatically outweighed all other considerations. While house slaves like the Hemingses may have generally been exempted from more physically challenging fieldwork, there were some advantages to being outside the constant eye view of white masters and mistresses. Enslaved people who worked away from the master's house had greater personal autonomy and the chance to commune with one another in the manner they chose, 
they could more easily say what they wanted the way they wanted. Every moment spent away from white masters and mistresses gave them the chance to fashion and maintain their own sense of identity in matters of family, religion, and other social practices. The things most real and important about slaves' lives were the things most hidden from the white world. In the field, even with an overseer making rounds, slaves were largely free from too intimate involvement with the whims and personalities of their oppressors. For some, this could well have been a psychological relief more precious than the extra calories burned and effort expended in tending crops. We must remember that in the society in which the Hemingses existed, family was all. This was as true for blacks as for whites. Importantly, during the Hemingses' time at Monticello, family, at its most elemental level, was about blood ties. The Hemingses' situation vis-à-vis -vis other slaves in their community was especially complicated because they were slaves in a household where they were genetically related both to one another and to those who held them in bondage. Because of that connection, the master of that household chose to treat them in a way that separated them from the rest of the enslaved population. For example, letting some of its members hire themselves out and keep their wages, exempting the women of the family from any hard labor, freeing only people from that family, giving certain of its males virtual free movement, and selecting them for special training as artisans. The master then chose a woman from the Hemings family, had children with her, and arranged for the freedom of that nuclear family. Any enslaved member of that community who knew the history of Monticello would have known that the only route to freedom, one traveled only infrequently, was the possession of Wales, Jefferson, or Hemings blood. No one else had a chance. It is doubtful that other members of the community could have avoided seeing the Hemingses as different from themselves. It is also unlikely that members of the Hemings family could have avoided seeing themselves in something of a special light, even if the harsh reality of slavery might have served to check the tendency to see themselves as completely separate from other enslaved people. These and many other issues must be considered as we examine the Hemings family's progress through the 18th and 19th centuries. History is to a great degree an imaginative enterprise. When writing it or reading it, we try to see the subjects in their time and space. Imagining requires some starting point of connection. Even though we acknowledge that the connections will not be perfect, we cannot really know exactly what it meant to be a Hemings at Monticello, or a Jefferson for that matter. We have to reference what we know of human beings as we try to reconstruct and establish a context for their lives. Historians often warn against the danger of essentializing when making statements about people of the past, positing an elemental human nature that can be discerned and relied upon at all times and in all places. Warnings notwithstanding, there are, in fact, some elements of the human condition that have existed forever, transcending time and place. If there were none, and if historians did not try to connect to those elements, consciously or unconsciously, 
historical writing would be simply incomprehensible. Think of attempting to read a foreign language in a script you had never seen before. You could stare at the pages for an eternity, but without some point of commonality between the unknown script and something you already know, a connection, no matter how long you stared, you could never crack the code. Therefore, we should not be afraid to call upon what we know in general about mothers, fathers, families, male-female relationships, power relationships, the contours of life in small, closely-knit communities, as we try to see the Hemingses in the context of their own time and place. This will require thinking of the family members in a way they were not thought of during their lives, and, it must be said, during most of the period that Monticello has been the object of scholarly attention, as fully formed persons with innate worth and equal humanity that links them directly to us all, no matter what our race. I asked in an earlier work, in what universe could the humanity, family integrity, and honor of slave owners count for more than the humanity, family integrity, and honor of slaves? My answer was that we Americans have lived in that universe since the founding of the country, and have only recently begun the process of moving beyond its boundaries. I hope this work adds to the momentum of that journey. The lives of the various members of the Hemings family, which must include the white men who had children with Hemings women, provide important windows through which to view the development of slavery and the concept of race in the Virginia of the 18th and 19th centuries. While there was much about the Hemingses that made them unique, Jefferson and Monticello, like other enslaved people, they were subject to all the insecurities and deprivations associated with that condition. It seems especially appropriate to tell one part of the story of slavery through life at a place that holds such symbolic importance for many Americans, Monticello. For it is there that we can find the absolute best and the absolute worst that we have been as Americans. We should not get too far into the 21st century without looking back at the Hemingses and their time to remember and to learn. Part 1. Origins Chapter 1. Young Elizabeth's World Elizabeth Hemings began life when America was still a colonial possession. She lived through the revolution in the home of one of the men who helped make it, and died during the formative years of the American Republic, an unknown person in the midst of pivotal events in national and world history. Hemings lived at a time when chattel slavery existed in every American colony, but was dramatically expanding and thriving in the Virginia that was her home. She was, by law, an item of property, a non-white female slave, whose life was bounded by 18th-century attitudes about how such persons fit into society. Those attitudes, years in the making by the time Hemings was born, fascinate because they are at once utterly familiar and totally alien. Most Americans today admit the existence of racism and sexism, even as we often disagree about examples of them. When we encounter these practices while studying the 18th century, 
we react knowingly. These are the things, at least some of us say, that we're still working to overcome. We also know that hierarchies, based on any number of factors, exist in every society, enriching the lives of some and blighting the lives of others. Yet, slavery is a different matter altogether. There are workers all over the world who live desperate lives with little hope of advancement for themselves or their children. There are women who are held in bondage and forced to work as prostitutes or to clean others' homes and care for others' families while their own families go unattended. None of these conditions approach the systematic degradation and violence of American slavery sanctioned by state and church. People were bought and sold against their will. They were defined in statutes as chattel or real estate. With the law's protection, they could be beaten to death as part of legitimate correction. They were denied legal marriage. Slave women were unprotected against rape. Forcing a slave woman to have sex against her will was considered a trespass against her owner. If her owner raped her, it was no crime at all. What the violation meant to the woman was irrelevant. The law prevented slaves from giving testimony in courts against white people. It was a world where one could pick up the daily newspaper and see advertisements touting Negroes for sale and descriptions of runaway slaves complete with stock caricatures that made them instantly recognizable to all readers. These and all the other depredations of the slave system present a world that seems far removed from daily life in the United States in the 21st century. Though we hear echoes of that world and understand that its effects are still present, much about this time feels otherworldly. Understanding the path of Elizabeth Hemings's life requires some consideration of the contours of the community into which she was born, an elastic place with boundaries that expanded, contracted, shifted, and evolved over time. At the broadest level, Hemings was part of a large Atlantic world, comprising Europeans and Africans on both sides of that ocean, whose lives were shaped by the demands of slavery. While the characteristics of that world must inform our view, a thorough investigation of all parts of it is beyond the scope of this book. Instead, we will draw the circle around Hemings more closely to look at the world she would have known most intimately, the world of an enslaved woman in 18th century Virginia. To say to an American that Elizabeth Hemings was born a slave is to call forth a particular image of who she was, how she lived her life, and even how she spoke and carried herself. That is because slavery lives in the minds of most Americans as a series of iconic images. A slave ship packed tight with human cargo, a whip, the auction block, slaves speaking one universal and timeless dialect, black figures toiling in cotton fields. That last image, the cotton field, has most strongly influenced our view, freezing the institution in its antebellum period when cotton was king and when slavery had, in the view of one influential historian, been thoroughly domesticated. 
By the time King Cotton arrived in the 19th century, enslaved Virginians of African origin and those of English extraction whose ancestors introduced slavery into the Old Dominion had long since become Americans, and the institution that defined their existence together had adapted itself, it seemed, for the long haul. What had gone before, the process that brought those two groups into their Americanness, is largely the province of scholars of the 17th and early 18th centuries. There are many reasons for this, but several immediately come to mind. First, American slavery at its beginnings, obscure, distant, and tragic, is probably for most people a less attractive point of focus than the story of the discovery and political foundation. Penguin Random House Audio presents The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead Read for you by Bonnie Turpin Ajari The first time Caesar approached Cora about running north, she said no. This was her grandmother talking. Cora's grandmother had never seen the ocean before that bright afternoon in the port of Ouida, and the water dazzled after her time in the fort's dungeon. The dungeon stored them until the ships arrived. Dahomean raiders kidnapped the men first, then returned to her village the next moon for the women and children, marching them in chains to the sea, two by two. As she stared into the black doorway... Ajari thought she'd be reunited with her father, down there in the dark. The survivors from her village told her that when her father couldn't keep the pace of the long march, the slavers stove in his head and left his body by the trail. Her mother had died years before. Cora's grandmother was sold a few times on the trek to the fort, passed between slavers for cowrie shells and glass beads, it was hard to say how much they paid for her in Ouida, as she was part of a bulk purchase, 88 human souls, for 60 crates of rum and gunpowder. The price arrived upon after the standard haggling in Coast English. Able-bodied men and child-bearing women fetched more than juveniles, making an individual accounting difficult. The nanny was out of Liverpool and had made two previous stops along the Gold Coast. The captain staggered his purchases rather than find himself with cargo of singular culture and disposition. Who knew what brand of mutiny his captives might cook up if they shared a common tongue? This was the ship's final port of call before they crossed the Atlantic. Two yellow-haired sailors rowed Ajari out to the ship, humming, White skin like bone. The noxious air of the hold, the gloom of confinement, and the screams of those shackled to her contrived to drive Ajari to madness. Because of her tender age, her captors did not immediately force their urges upon her. But eventually, some of the more seasoned mates dragged her from the hold six weeks into the passage. She twice tried to kill herself on the voyage to America once by denying herself food, and then again by drowning. The sailors stymied her both times, 
versed in the schemes and inclinations of chattel. Ajari didn't even make it to the gunwale when she tried to jump overboard. Her simpering posture and piteous aspect, recognizable from thousands of slaves before her, betrayed her intentions. Chained head to toe, head to toe, in exponential misery. Although they had tried not to get separated at the auction in Ouida, the rest of her family was purchased by Portuguese traders from the frigate Vivilla, next seen four months later drifting ten miles off Bermuda. Plague had claimed all on board. Authorities lit the ship on fire and watched her crackle and sink. Cora's grandmother knew nothing about the ship's fate. For the rest of her life, she imagined her cousins worked for kind and generous masters up north, engaged in more forgiving trades than her own, weaving or spinning, nothing in the fields. In her stories, Isay and Sidhu and the rest somehow bought their way out of bondage and lived as free men and women in the city of Pennsylvania, a place she had overheard two white men discuss once. These fantasies gave Ajari comfort when her burdens were such to splinter her into a thousand pieces. The next time Cora's grandmother was sold was after a month in the pest house on Sullivan's Island. Once the physicians certified her and the rest of the nanny's cargo clear of illness. Another busy day on the exchange. A big auction always drew a colorful crowd. Traders and procurers from up and down the coast converged on Charleston, checking the merchandise's eyes and joints and spines, wary of venereal distemper and other afflictions. Onlookers chewed fresh oysters and hot corn as the auctioneers shouted into the air. The slaves stood naked on the platform. There was a bidding war over a group of Ashanti studs those Africans of renowned industry and musculature, and the foreman of a limestone quarry bought a bunch of piccaninnies in an astounding bargain. Cora's grandmother saw a little boy among the gawkers eating rock candy and wondered what he was putting in his mouth. Just before sunset, an agent bought her for $226. She would have fetched more, but for that season's glut of young girls... His suit was made of the whitest cloth she had ever seen. Rings set with colored stone flashed on his fingers. When he pinched her breasts to see if she was in flower, the metal was cool on her skin. She was branded, not for the first or last time, and fettered to the rest of the day's acquisitions. The coffle began their long march south that night, staggering behind the trader's buggy. The nanny, by that time, was en route back to Liverpool, full of sugar and tobacco. There were fewer screams below decks. You would have thought Cora's grandmother cursed. So many times was she sold and swapped and resold over the next few years. Her owners came to ruin with startling frequency. Her first master got swindled by a man who sold a device that cleaned cotton twice as fast as Whitney's gin. The diagrams were convincing, but in the end, Ajari was another asset liquidated by order of the magistrate. 
She went for $218 in a hasty exchange, a drop in price occasioned by the realities of the local market. Another owner expired from dropsy, whereupon his widow held an estate sale to fund a return to her native Europe, where it was clean. Ajari spent three months as the property of a Welshman, who eventually lost her, three other slaves, and two hogs in a game of whist, and so on. Her price fluctuated. When you are sold that many times, the world is teaching you to pay attention. She learned to quickly adjust to the new plantations, sorting the nigger-breakers from the merely cruel, the layabouts from the hard-working, the informers from the secret-keepers. Masters and mistresses in degrees of wickedness, estates of disparate means and ambition. Sometimes the planters wanted nothing more than to make a humble living, and then there were men and women who wanted to own the world, as if it were a matter of the proper acreage. 248, 260, 270 dollars. Wherever she went it was sugar and indigo except for a stint folding tobacco leaves for one week before she was sold again. The trader called upon the tobacco plantation looking for slaves of breeding age, preferably with all their teeth and of pliable disposition. She was a woman now. Off she went. She knew that the white man's scientists peered beneath things to understand how they worked the movement of the stars across the night, the cooperation of humors in the blood, the temperature requirements for a healthy cotton harvest. Ajari made a science of her own black body and accumulated observations. Each thing had a value, and as the value changed, everything else changed also. A broken calabash was worth less than one that held its water. A hook that kept its catfish more prized than one that relinquished its bait. In America, the quirk was that people were things. Best to cut your losses on an old man who won't survive a trip across the ocean. A young buck from strong tribal stock got customers into a froth. A slave girl squeezing out pups was like a mint. Money that bred money. If you were a thing... A cart, or a horse, or a slave. Your value determined your possibilities. She minded her place. Finally, Georgia. A representative of the Randall Plantation bought her for $292, in spite of the new blankness behind her eyes, which made her look simple-minded. 